Amen. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And revel in the glory that our salvation does not depend on anything that we bring to the table. Not any work, not any merit, not anything in us, but we stand on Christ alone. A sure foundation. He's a mighty Savior. And His death on the cross is actually sufficient to save us wholly apart from anything we've done. And there is a temptation within every human heart to want to try to save ourselves. Kind of a self-salvation. I'm going to try to do a little something. And even for for born-again Christians, sometimes we can slip into kind of like, I'm going to do a little bit, like i got to do a little something, and then I'll be accepted before God. As if our works are going to somehow add to the perfect work of Christ that we sung about. I mean that Jesus paid it all. And that his death is sufficient and he's a powerful savior who actually saves people who cannot save themselves. That's the power of the gospel. And Paul has been up until this point in Philippians, he's been talking about Christian living. He's been talking about, hey, you got to work out your salvation in fear and trembling for it's God who works in you, the willing and doing of his good pleasure. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Right? Live a life holy. Live a humble life. And he's telling all this stuff that you got to do. I mean, he's going to empower it. And then Paul is going to kind of like shift gears now. And he's going to talk about like, this is what you have to do to get saved. Nothing. Christ did it for you. It's as one preacher said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus our baptism. It's not Jesus plus our church attendance. It's not Jesus plus how often we show up at the prayer meeting. It's not Jesus and how often we show up at Sunday school. All those things are good. And Christians ought to be doing those things. But they don't get you there. And the number one thing that I see when I'm preaching the gospel and I hear out in the world, when you say, if you were to stand before God, if you were to die tonight, stand before God and say to him, and he asks you, why, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And the answer is typically, it's because I'm a good person. It's because of my good works. By far and away, nobody really sees themselves as sinners totally hopeless. Apart from God, compared to somebody else, we always seem like we're kind of like, okay, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer, so like God's going to grade on a curve. I'm not Hitler, so God's going to grade on a curve. And we have such a distorted view, really, if we were to set ourselves against the bar of the greatest two commandments. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? And honestly, we fail miserably at that. Honestly, we 
fail to give God thanks and glory for so much of what happens, what goes on, what we do. We, we fail to honor God and love people well. And you might come in here today and you're like, I feel like a shipwreck in how I've been doing family life. I feel a mess. And you might come in here today and you're like, I'm blowing it in my battle for purity. Or you come in and, 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 and you, you realize, like, I'm blowing it ultimately in just serving other people well. The first instinct is for me to serve myself. And the Apostle Paul has such glorious news for us. He has such a glorious gospel he wants us to get a hold of. And he wants to liberate us from that idea that we bring anything to our salvation and that God's smile on us has anything to do with our performance. And sometimes we think that, like, if I'm just good today, if I'm a good boy, if I'm a good girl, God will be more happy with me. Instead of, because I'm in Christ, because I'm in the Son of God, because I trust Him alone, and stand on Him alone, every sin has been wiped away. It's been paid for in full. And all of the wrath I deserve, all of the righteous indignation of God upon sin has been absorbed by my Savior in my place. So when God sees me, His smile is over me because He sees me robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to bring and reorient us into that world. And he wants to warn us of the danger of slipping away from that into false teaching. So let's pray. And we'll get into our text. Heavenly Father God, I just pray, Lord, that you would blow upon your word. That your word would be like, it is, it's a sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the soul and the spirit. It, it pierces the soul. It studies us. It exposes where we need reorientation and where we need help. And, and it transfixes our eyes on Jesus, which is its chief subject. And so the Word of God holds forth a vision of the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, as of the only Son from the Father. To die on a cross for sinners. To rescue them. Father, would you help us to get a hold of this? Would you help us to be gripped by this? And would your spirit come upon this word? And Lord, that it would be like arrows of truth. Just encouraging our souls. Reminding us of the basic reality of the gospel. So that our boast would not be in anything in us. But it would be in Christ alone. That we would stand on that sure foundation today. In Jesus' name, would you blow upon us? with your spirit. Amen. So let's dive in. We're going to see basically this text break down in three parts. We're going to see that we're going to be rejoicing in the Lord. There's a command to rejoice in the Lord. There's a warning against the false teachers who are going to pervert the gospel. And then there's this call for the true believers to boast in the Lord. And I'm going to read verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, but we're just going to study the first three verses, but I want you to get the context. 
Finally, my brothers, and like many preachers, he inserts finally, and he's got two chapters left, right? So finally, my brothers, he just means I'm about to give you a nugget right now. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Sounds a lot like what we were singing. Though I myself have reason to confidence for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he's got a reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more, Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law, a Pharisee, check. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, check. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, or whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. There's just so much there. That's why we got to dice it up and just do three verses because Paul is just, he's, ex, he's exploding in a gospel that removes any boasting, that removes any boasting and produces abundant joy. That's why I'm calling this sermon the joy of boasting in Christ alone. Because many of our problems start by not boasting in Christ. Many of our problems start because we haven't fixed our eyes on Christ. We haven't given Him all the glory. And we begin to look at other things. Because Paul's not saying when he says rejoice in the Lord, that's a command. He's just, he's like rejoice in the Lord. He's calling us to that. And some of us, in fact, all of us at one time or another, struggle with joy, right? We don't always feel like we're bubbling up with joy and everything's rosy. And Paul is not saying in verse 1, when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's not saying stick your head in the sand and pretend like nothing bad is going on. Like la 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 la, there's no coronavirus. La 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 la, there's nothing horrible going on in the Middle East. La la la, like none of that is happening for Paul. Paul is saying Don't be like Pollyannish and just pretend like everything's great when it's not. I think of the Lego movie, right? The Lego movie starts out, there's this song that everybody's singing and they're lulled under this kind of false sense of security and they're singing, everything is awesome. Everything is great. Everything's wonderful. And it's not. 
That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a joy that transcends and goes over and above circumstances. And it's a joy in what? Verse 1. It's a joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. My brothers, he's, he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you guys to know, Smithfield Baptist Church, Church at Philippi, I want you to know to rejoice, not in all the stuff that's going wrong, but in the Lord. You want to know where that joy comes from? You fix your eyes on the Lord. You boast in the Lord. You glory in the gospel that saved you. You've been set free. We were just singing about the glory, the amazing grace, and the glory of standing in Christ alone. And was not joy bubbling up in your soul when you took your eyes off your problems for a second and you just began to fix them on the rock-solid hope of Christ rescuing you, a sinner who's totally hopeless without Him? He's not saying like, hey, you want to have joy? Throw a fig leaf on and pretend you're good enough. He's not saying, you know what? And this is what the false teachers are going to say. You, you got to be like a Jew and you got to keep the whole Old Testament law of Moses and all the civil requirements. And you know what, Gentiles? Bummer for you. You got to get circumcised and you're like 30 years old. And brothers, can I get an amen? That's going to be painful, right? That's no kind of joy. Paul's like, that's going to strip you of your joy. And Paul is just after our joy all through this letter. Look at chapter 1 and verse 3. This is how he prays. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? With joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You want to get excited and have joy in your heart? Delight in the gospel fellowship that he has provided, the Lord has provided at Smithfield Baptist Church or with any Christian that you, you could not know them from Adam, right? But you get to talking about the Lord and it's like you've met your best friend. How many of you have had that experience? Oh, you're a Christian? They start telling you their testimony. They start telling you how Jesus saved them, how they were lost, they were blind, now they see. You start hearing like prodigal son stories where the prodigal son, you know, we know that story. He ruined his life and came to his senses one day, came back to the father and got lavishly welcomed, forgiven and restored. Kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him, give him a ring. Sounds a lot like justification by faith. And when you talk to brothers and sisters in Christ who've had that experience, there's a kinship that goes deeper than blood. There's a kinship that goes deeper than all the stuff that we've been, you know, trying to unite around. Because we all look for stuff. When we've got friendships, you want to have common stuff to, like, build that friendship around. And there's no greater foundation and there's no greater joy than building friendship and fellowship around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's joy. That's his heart. He doesn't stop there, though. Verse 18, he says, I glory in and I rejoice in the actual preaching of the gospel. 
Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. And Paul had just got done saying, some people preached Christ from good motives, and some, some people were preaching the gospel to actually hurt Paul. And Paul was just like, hey, if Jesus is being preached and the gospel's accurately being communicated, I'm glorying in that. I'm rejoicing in that. Have you ever just in your heart reflected on the kind of joy that comes when you hear the gospel afresh? When somebody says to you, you know what, brother and sister, do, do you realize that you have been saved by a mighty and powerful God, though you were lost, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were walking under deception of the evil one, living your own way, miserable in the world, and God made you alive. God opened your eyes. God gave you a heart to actually believe the gospel and you were saved because Jesus died on a cross to rescue sinners. That would be glorious enough. I get pardoned. But Jesus raises up out of the grave three days later and nobody does that. Nobody comes back from death. But the Son of God does. But Jesus does because He's Lord over life and death. He's Lord over diseases, the natural realm. He can walk on water. He can heal lepers. He can actually raise the dead. And how many resurrections were happening in the Gospels? Lazarus had been stinking for four days. And Jesus actually delays in coming to him when he could have healed him outright. But that the glory of God would be revealed. He says... Lazarus, come forth. And he walks up out of the tomb. And they got to unbandage him. Nobody in the history of the world has ever done that. Jesus does it. And that's exactly what he does to you and I when he turns the light on. You were dead in your sins. You had a heart dead to the things of God. And he made you alive. When you heard the gospel, you believed and you were saved, and you were taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. You were in darkness, now you're in the light. You've passed from death to life. Glory in that! That is glorious news! And if you have not tasted it, Paul is summoning and calling forth a command, rejoice in the Lord. There's going to be no true and lasting joy anywhere else. But there are hindrances to us experiencing the fullness of that joy. And Paul is getting after in verse, the end of verse 1. Notice what he says. He says, to, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it's safe for you. Why does he say that? He just got done saying, finally. And then he goes into this whole kind of account. After that, saying, it's going to be safe that I talk to you about the next stuff. Because false teaching is always a hindrance to your joy. You will have less joy if you believe false teaching. And some false teaching is deadly and damnable. And if you believe it, you perish. And so Paul is like, he's concerned. That's why he's calling people dogs. 
I mean, you call somebody a dog, that's kind of nasty. You know, I'm thinking of like a Clint Eastwood movie, you low down dirty dog sort of thing. But that's like, that's like the Apostle Paul saying, listen, you're an unclean animal. Look out for this animal. Look out for this scavenger dog. This isn't like when we brought our golden doodle into the home a couple months back and we were just like awestruck by this animal. Beautiful, cute little teddy bear. Paul's like, no, this is a scavenging dog. Think coyote. And he's getting that kind of imagery going. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for false teachers. Verse 2, look at this, how he describes these false teachers. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, a dog was an unclean animal. And Jews did not want any dealings with unclean animals. In fact, the ironic thing is that a Jew would call a Gentile who was a non-Jew unclean. And animals that were unclean were those who didn't discriminate in what they ate. They just ate all sorts of nasty stuff in the garbage dump, and they were disease-ridden, and they were just, you just wanted, did not want to be around them. And that's exactly what Jews thought of non-Jews. These are nasty people. They don't discriminate anything. They don't worship the true and living God. They're disgusting, unclean. And Paul is actually speaking of Jews who held to a teaching that you had to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses and believe in the Messiah, Jesus, in order to be saved. And that all the Gentiles, which is all of you, we're going to have to do that. Oh, you believe the gospel? That's great. But you got you to gotta obey the whole law of Moses. And guess what, men? Circumcision. Doesn't matter how old you are. That's the right, that's the entrance into Judaism, being circumcised. That's the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament that was given to Abraham. If you're circumcised, you're in. According to the law of Moses, it was a sign of the covenant. And Paul is saying, you're missing it. You're dogs. You're teaching actual the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Jesus actually came to deal with human hearts. You don't just need circumcised physically. You need a circumcised heart is what Paul's going to end up saying. In verse 3, he says, we're the circumcision, the true believers. And he was getting at this idea of needing a circumcised heart. And I want us to get in this world of what the the... the the dogs were doing or these false teachers, they were adding something to the gospel. They were adding to the gospel something that was destructive. That was like a pit that would damn souls. And Paul is like, you got to look out. This is a pit you could fall into. And we, uh, we have this egress window in our backyard and basically, it's this window that's underground, and you have this well dug out to where you can get light into the bottom rooms. And the only problem is, it's like a bear trap. <laughs> you know, like, you just fall into it and break a leg or, you know, mash your face really good. 
And so we were always worried, like, are our kids going to go into this egress? They're just going to be like, look, because they don't watch where they're going. They're just running and boop, we lost Joji, you know. <laughs> and and we, so we don't want that to happen. So we wanted to put an egress window cover on this hole. And that's exactly what we did. We were safeguarding. We were trying to guard against the danger. And Paul is warning us and warning Philippi, hey, these Judaizers who you saw all through the book of Acts, who were saying all these Gentiles need to be circumcised, they're actually leading people astray. They're hindering people from the gospel. They're evil workers and evil doers. And have you ever noticed that false teachers who are leading people astray always have some kind of moral calamity going on in their life. They might sure talk a good talk. We got to keep the whole law of Moses. We got to do all this extra stuff on top of trusting in Jesus. And their lives are secretly a mess. And it comes out. Evildoers. It's the height of wickedness to add something to the gospel and pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to how... Paul actually warns in the book of Galatians about what this, this is so intense for him that he has a whole book devoted to this one thing that we're talking about. You add something to the gospel, you add something to the work of Jesus, you're damned, is what he would say. He's fired up. Listen to how he puts it. I am astonished, Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. So when you add something to the gospel, it's a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. And that's exactly what we see in the world around us. How many purported gospels come to us and there's always strings attached. Oh yeah, believe in Jesus, but you've got to be baptized into the Mormon church. And by the way, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer in the Mormon thinking. So you've got a total different Jesus. You've got all these things added in. In fact, the Book of Mormon teaches that you're saved by grace after all you can do. That's another gospel, brothers and sisters. It's another gospel that Paul is putting the anathema to. And by the way, the Book of Mormon was revealed by a so-called angel from heaven to Joseph Smith. It's like right out of Galatians. So this stuff happens today. All the, the things that we see uh, around us in religion are usually around what you can do to get to heaven. In fact, to this day, most people will say stuff like, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's nowhere in the Bible. But that's what people say. Oh, you want to know what Christianity is all about? God helps those who help themselves. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did the Lord of glory have to come and die on a cross if it wasn't the only way? 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. So Jesus obviously thought it was the only way. In fact, he's praying in a garden, sweating drops of blood, saying, Lord, is there any other way, Father? No, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because the only way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled is not being good enough, but by trusting in the one who was good enough. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who are going to tell you to mutilate the flesh or do some kind of other religious activity to get there. That's what Paul's saying. You trust in Christ alone. Like the thief on the cross, right? What does he do on the last day? He's hanging on a cross. He's got no hope. He can't save himself. He can't help himself. But what does he say? He says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus looks him in the eye. He doesn't say, but you got to be baptized. But you got to do the law of Moses. You got to be circumcised. He says, Today, you will be with me in paradise because he trusted in Jesus. We're saved not by our works, but for by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, and that removes any boasting on our part. And if we're going to boast, we boast in who? In the Lord. That's why the singing is happening. That's why the praise is happening. You know what? We'd be singing songs all about ourselves if it was up to us. But we're singing about Him. The Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of His people. So we've seen, like, there's no joy in believing a false gospel, and we've got to be warned about them. And we got to be warned about false teachers coming in. And they come into the church, too. They come into the church. That's how they come. And they start teaching false things. That's why you got to hold your pastor to preach this book. If I'm not preaching something that's coming in from this book that you can't see coming from this book, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, that's why I say that, so you know it's coming from this book. This is the inspired Word of God. And we want to uphold it. We want to proclaim it. We want to stand on it because it holds up the Lamb of God. It holds up the Rock of Ages. It holds up the One who was from of old, the Ancient of Days. It holds up the One whose eyes are like a flame of fire. It holds up the One who rescues sinners dying on a cross. This book discloses to us the way of salvation. And the way is Christ. In Christ alone. Verse 3. True believers, we're going to see, are those who are boasting in Christ alone. Verse 3 says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's three things there, right? He's like, we are the circumcision. And you know how we're the circumcision? Because we're the ones that worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. 
And that's a weird way to talk. We don't usually call one another uh, as Christians, hey, you're the truly circumcised. We don't think about it like that, right? But he's talking about the circumcision of the heart. He's talking about something new that has happened. The old has given way to the new. And God does not call the mark and sign of the new covenant circumcision of old. It's a circumcised heart. It's a heart that has been born anew. It's a heart that has been rescued by the shed blood of Jesus and his righteousness. It's a heart that is totally transformed. And when he says, we are the circumcision, he's saying we're the true spiritual Jews. We're the ones who've received the promises. We're the ones who've received the Messiah. Gentiles and Jews can be included in the new church because God is after the nations. And you want to know how to get in? You got to have a new heart. And we see this all over the place. We see it in places like um, Romans chapter 2. Listen to this. This is Paul unpacking this very thing. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and merely physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You're like, oh, that's a New Testament thing. That's not in the Old Testament. So you got problems. And maybe the Judaizers were saying that. They were saying, hey, that's the, we got to get back to the Old Testament Scriptures. They're inspired too. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, so that you may live. You want to know how to obey the first two commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You need a new heart. Sin has corrupted our heart and has corrupted our record before God. And we need new hearts and we need a cleansed record. And do you know who does that? The Lamb of God. Jesus Christ gives you a new heart and a new record. We are the circumcision. We're the Israel of God as the church. Paul would go on to say in Galatians chapter 6. Go read it for yourself. The true Israel of God, the true people of God is those who have received the Messiah of God and have been given new hearts. They're true children of Abraham. Jesus would tell the Pharisees, you're of the father, your father, the devil. You're not of Abraham. You want to kill me. And you do the works of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. You want to be a child of Abraham? You want to be a child chosen? You need a new heart. The circumcision of the heart. And those who have a new heart worship God in new ways. Verse 3, right? What do we do? If we've been given a new heart, we worship by the Spirit of God. We've been given a new heart. We worship in new ways. And I'm thinking of the, the um, woman at the mill, or woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. 
She's talking to Jesus. She's got the Messiah right before her eyes. And this Messiah comes to her and starts talking about living water. And she's like, well, yeah, do we worship here or do we worship over on the mountain? And Jesus is like, hey, there's a time coming where people are not going to be worshiping in this place or that place. What I'm calling forth is a worship of the spirit, a worship in spirit and truth. Listen to listen to how this is said in um, in her words. She says, or I'm sorry, in his words, um, Jesus is saying to her, you're worshiping and thinking it's all about location. And I'm calling forth a worship that can come anywhere, anytime, through a heart that has the spirit of God in it. You're no longer worshiping in a temple. The temple has been destroyed. Jesus is calling forth a new temple, and it's the people of God. It's the people of God where the Spirit of God dwells. And if you have the Spirit inside of you, you have God dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul says all over the place in the New Testament. He says that you actually, uh, Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8 and verse 9, he says that you have the Spirit if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. But anyone who does not have the Spirit of God in him does not belong to God. So you want to know how you're a child of God? Do you have the Spirit dwelling in you? We just came to our year warranty on our house um, in Shelbyville. And it was one of those things that was kind of an epiphany because it came so quick. But we've been living there for a year. We've been dwelling. You have like the little Phillips crew running around 240 Mason View Court. And that's our home because we're dwelling there. And Paul is saying, if you're a child of God, if you're circumcised of the heart, you actually have the spirit of God dwelling in you and making a home in you. And you are a child of God. And the spirit is bearing witness with your spirit. You're a child of God and you're being caught up in worship. And the Spirit of God lives inside of us. We are the people who worship by the Spirit of God. What a glorious privilege it is to know we're children of the living God. And that God puts a down payment and a deposit and a guarantee. I'm going to put my spirit inside you so you know you've been changed from the inside out. The last thing we see in this passage in verse three is a Christian is to put no confidence in the flesh. This may be the hardest one for us to grasp, Put no confidence in the flesh. And he's talking about like the actual like flesh, like don't put any confidence in your flesh, your abilities, your works, your, uh, uh, um, you know, gifts, maybe your calling, maybe your job. We wrap our identities in so much other stuff. And he's saying, you need to put your confidence. You need to boast in Christ alone. You need to glory in Christ Jesus. You need to look to Christ and glory in Christ and boast in Christ because all of our works will not do. You're going to be trying to stand on a limp leg. A couple weeks after we had got our dog, uh, Maisie, um, you know, the kids, have, they're trying to learn how to actually like 
live with a dog, and sometimes they, they're learning you know, on the job, right? So apparently they thought Maisie could fly at one point, and she, turns out she couldn't, you know? And she went from our landing onto the ground, which is like four or five feet, and hurt her leg, her hind leg, really badly. And so she's hobbling around, and she doesn't want to put any weight on it at all. She doesn't want that weight to come down. She's got no confidence in this leg, so she's hobbling along. And that's exactly what we do if we are putting confidence in our own works to get us to, to saved. To be before God on judgment day and say, look, what I did, Lord, is like trying to be on a gimp leg. It's trying to, 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 to have the broken leg of works hold you up. And it never will. It was never meant to. And God wants to set us free from the performance trap from the hobble in the Christian life where you're just trying to eat by and every day you feel either ashamed or excited about how well you're doing instead of having your identity wrapped up in who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf. He's paid it all and all to him we owe. He's the place we stand He's the one we hope in. He's the one we look to. That's why the word glory in Christ in verse 3 is the same word boast. Let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not many of us were of noble birth. Not many of us were powerful. Not many of us were wise, Paul would say in Corinthians. And God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to confound the strong. God chose the ignoble things to confound the noble. And he chose us, not because of anything in us that would merit salvation, but so we might boast in the Lord and all the glory would go to God. Nothing in this hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. Being from California, we miss the beaches quite a bit. And um, oftentimes we're thinking about like bonfires and stuff like that. I just miss going and having a bonfire at night, this big old fire. Everybody's gathered around. You can feel that breeze coming in and it's nice. I mean, you, you have that chill and you got to kind of warm yourself by the fire and you're roasting s'mores and marshmallows and all that stuff. And singing usually we have like a guitar live music out and i loved it and i love the feeling of that chill and that frost kind of deep in your bones just kind of going away as you're warmed by the fire and that's what we need we need to be warmed by the fire of the true gospel and our hearts warmed in a glow with the true gospel letting go of all the performance, letting go of all the stuff that we think we got to do to earn God's favor. And I think of one man who experienced that warming of the heart. His name was John Wesley. He was eventually the founder of the Wesleyan movement and the Methodist church. But he was a contemporary of George Whitfield. Actually, they were good friends. So this is 18th, 18th century Great Awakening stuff. And he's the one who started the holiness club trying to get himself saved by his good works. And he was frustrated. He was a hardworking man. I mean, he was just up early, 
working hard, diligent, so much so he was hard to be around because he was so intense, so just dialed in, want to get it done, and he was miserable. And he had read the Bible a ton, but his heart had never been warmed by the fire of the gospel. He had been so close to Jesus yet so far. So close because what he was doing is he was adding something to the work of Christ. He was just adding a little bit of John Wesley, a little bit of Jesus, and I'm good. And maybe you're there today. But listen, listen to what he actually says. One day he was in a Bible study and they were reading something from a, a preface that Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote about the book of Romans. Listen to to his experience. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Eldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, mine, and saved me from this, the law of sin and death. He had set me free. It had stopped being John Wesley. It had stopped being a little Wesley, a little Jesus equals salvation. And it became Jesus plus nothing else equals a heart on fire for God. And he would go on to be a horseback preacher with a new heart and preach. The very next sermon he preached was about justification through faith. Was about actually believing in Christ alone to save you from your sins. And today... We need that warming of the heart if we've never experienced it. We need that to stay close to the bonfire of the gospel. Stay close. Look to Jesus. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the life comes from. That's what keeps us from false teaching. Stay close to the fire of the gospel and let it warm your heart. And if you're not there, if you feel like John Wesley before that Bible study, I've just... I'm trying to do it on my own. Admit you can't. Admit you can't do it on your own. Admit your sins have wrecked you and wrecked your record and ruined your heart before God and you're totally helpless apart from Him. And confess your sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ afresh. Ask for your heart to be strangely warmed. Ask God to do a work in your soul. And stay close to the bonfire of God's blazing, saving gospel that he sent his son into the world to do what you could never do to save you from the performance trap of trying to save yourself. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you will find it. What does it profit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? But if you come to him with an empty hand and you cling 
and make him your boast. Glorious things will happen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you for this gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would that you would warm our hearts and that even as Christians, as we've heard the testimony of John Wesley, as we've heard the beauty of glorying in Christ and and boasting in the gospel and remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for us and that there's no hope apart from him. I pray, Father, that you would make our heart aglow once again and that it would radiate with the love of Christ, the joy of Christ and the peace of knowing that Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. And he is worthy of all our affection and praise. And we dare not boast in anything but Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.